In this year's lecture series, I'm going to be talking about public health. And today, I'm going to talk about one of the major issues in public health, which is the role of the state in helping to prevent disease. If we go back to when this college was founded uh, in 1597, the average person in the UK lived around 40 years, but many people died in childhood. And that continued all the way through to around the 1850s. And at that stage, uh, we started to see a gradual uh, and then steady improvement in health uh, through to a point now where the majority of people live to 80 years uh, or more. This has been something which has been, been seen across uh, much of the developed world uh, and increasingly, uh, fortunately, in lower and middle income countries as well. And what this talk is going to explore is what is the role of the state in this improvement and what should it be doing and what should it not be doing and where are the areas where there is uncertainty. Now, if we look at this improvement in mortality over the last 150 years, the initial improvements were in child health. And in, in this graph, uh, what you can see uh, is uh, various decades, starting from 1850s uh, all the way through to uh, the last uh, decade. Uh, and initially, the big improvements were in child health. Many people could still die all the way through their adult lives. But over the last uh, 50 and uh, 100 years, uh, we have seen significant improvements in health all the way through adulthood as well. So the great majority of people live through to a good old age by historical standards. And you can see this has been particularly true for certain classes of disease. Uh, on the dotted line here, this is uh, UK uh, mortality rates from infectious disease, heart disease and stroke and cancer. In the dotted line, uh, infectious diseases over the last 100 years have really disappeared as one of the major causes of mortality in, old, in, in younger people, although it is still a significant issue uh, for uh, all of us in older age. Uh, cardiovascular diseases, strokes and heart disease, reached their peak uh, in round about the 1950s and then have steadily improved. And for both of these major improvements in health, state interventions to help prevent disease have played a very major role, not the only role by any means. Medicine and the actions of individuals and above all, uh, people becoming wealthier uh, and through that, uh, having better diets, better housing, uh, better prospects have all contributed very substantially. But the state preventing disease has played a very major part uh, in this. And in the dashed line uh, are mortality rates from cancer, uh, where again, state prevention can help very substantially. Most people would agree with the old saying that prevention is better than cure. And public health, what this series is about and what this talk is about, is aiming to prevent disease and therefore to extend healthy life, uh, reduce ill health, reduce indignity, and reduce disability by prevention. And I've illustrated this uh, with our own head of state, the Queen, uh, in her 90s, uh, and another uh, great servant of the state and uh, these, uh, the rest of the, his fellow citizens, uh, Colonel uh, Sir Tom Moore, uh, now 100 years old. Uh, the aim that we should have people living full and happy and fulfilled lives is what underlies the principles of trying to improve public health. Now, within that... I think everyone listening to this would accept that individuals have the principal responsibility and role in helping to protect their own health. Medical professionals, like myself, uh, also have a significant role in helping to do this through prevention uh, and also, very importantly, through treatment. Uh, but the state also has a responsibility and a role uh, which is defined by what citizens want it to do. Now, much of public health, much prevention does not actually need the state, and that may vary by different nation, but some of it uh, definitely does, and that will be the majority of what I talk about today. 
The state has the capacity to prevent ill health and deaths in many citizens. The real question is, when should it? Now, how you'd answer this depends very heavily on your discipline, your nation, and your time in history. Uh, I'm a medical practitioner, uh, so I've illustrated this with uh, doctors and one uh, extraordinary uh, person, founding, the person who founded nursing, uh, Florence Nightingale. Uh, several of these, uh, the people illustrated here, were significant philosophers or worked in the courts. Uh, the court as in uh, the court of the monarch of the time, uh, some of them uh, were very important in our understanding uh, of what states should do. For example, John Locke uh, was a doctor as well as a philosopher. Uh, some of them, uh, some doctors have been involved uh, as heads of state, like uh, Dr. Banda here, uh, and some have been involved in multilateral areas. All of these people from different continents, different ages, different traditions would answer this question, what is the role of the state, slightly differently. And political tradition around the world is also important. So unlike many of the other talks I've given in, the, uh, in previous series about infections, about cancer, cardiovascular disease, dementia, and so on, which are really fundamentally about where is the science at this point in time, what is our current state of knowledge, this is something which has varied through time both because of the science, what is possible, but also because of contemporary beliefs. Uh, this is therefore a personal view uh, from a medical practitioner working in state medicine and as a doctor on the wards in 2020. Uh, previous medical practitioners and subsequent ones would probably give slightly different answers because people's belief in what the state should do does inevitably change. Now, running through this, uh, it's important to understand uh, one broad set of principles about how to think about prevention in healthcare, and this underlies a lot of public health. Conventionally, uh, public health prevention can be divided into three different types. Uh, primary prevention, and this is when you take the disease-free population, people going about their ordinary lives at all stages of their life, uh, and things are done which are there to try and make sure they do not get infections, do not get other diseases uh, from uh, their current state of being healthy. So to prolong as long as possible their completely healthy state. Then you have secondary prevention. Uh, and this is something which is about largely trying to identify early disease or identify people who've got particularly high risks uh, of disease, for example, they might have high cholesterol and high blood pressure uh, as risks for cardiovascular disease, uh, and then uh, intervene to delay progression. And finally, uh, you have tertiary prevention. When someone's got a significant disease, for example, they might have had a small stroke, uh, and you want to make sure they don't go on to have a larger and more disabling one. When we think of the separation of the responsibilities between state medicine, what the state does, and I've capitalized it throughout just to avoid uh, any ambiguity, and what individual medical practitioners do to help support citizens and their families to maintain good health in terms of prevention, it does uh, tend to vary slightly between this primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. The reality is that most people only go to a doctor when they or their family are unwell. And primary care physicians in the UK, GPs, and specialists in hospitals generally have the central role in secondary and tertiary prevention, in finding people who've got early disease or risk factors for disease, and then trying to intervene early to prevent that progressing. And this, importantly, is based on individual consent because you can talk as a doctor, as a nurse, as another medical practitioner to the individual person and their family, and you can say, these are the risks, these are the benefits, this is what we think uh, is a good idea, uh, and then discuss the pros and cons. Primary prevention, which happens within the uh, overall society, uh, for those not yet unwell, it's very difficult to have the same kind of uh, discussion. And this kind of prevention, which happens for the whole population, generally falls to the state. It may have medical practitioners within it, but 
This generally falls to the state, along with what's called health protection, which is largely to do with preventing people getting significant infectious diseases, particularly in epidemics. Now, in, in democracies, the role of the state must depend on what citizens want the state to do. And this is expressed through their elected government. And it's the job of people like myself, directors of public health in local authorities, uh, in local government, uh, and others, uh, to lay out the evidence and say what can be done by the state to improve health, and the risks either way, of doing things and not doing things, it is absolutely the role of elected politicians, whether they're the elected government of the day, whether it's parliament uh, or whether it's local government, to decide what should be done by the state. And this becomes more important the more interventionist the state has to be to try and help protect people's health. So there is in public health the concept of the ladder of intervention. You start off with things which are relatively uncontentious uh, and do not require significant state powers, uh, but then you move up it uh, if that is what the population expressed through the democratic process think is the right thing to do. At the bottom of this are things like supporting science to test out possibilities, informing the public that risks are there, uh, and engaging positively with industry to say, look, Let's have a voluntary discussion, for example, about how you could reduce salt, so that, which is a known risk factor for high blood pressure and therefore stroke. And that's been uh, very successful in many cases. This is not using state power. This is just using uh, the ability to actually engage in conversations. Slightly more uh, uh, use of state uh, resources are mass voluntary programs. These are things where people can choose to be part of them or not, but they are provided by the state. Things like vaccination uh, or screening if people wish to have them, and uh, generally they're only uh, recommended if there's a high evidence base that they should be. Uh, nudge taxes, quite small taxes or interventions that are designed to push people slightly one way uh, rather than another. And then you go to more uh, extensive use of the ability of the state to intervene. And this might involve regulation, more heavy taxation, outright banning of products that are very dangerous, and at the extreme end, making individual citizens subject to the civil or criminal law. And the more you go up this ladder of intervention, the more central the role of elected politicians is in deciding what is the appropriate way that the state should respond. And it is very important for people involved in public health, particularly when they're in, in, in the state system, so in local government or in general government, to uh, be very respectful of the fact that the, the tradition that the state should interfere as little as possible is a long and honourable one uh, in this country and every other country, on both the left and the right in politics, in the law, which I've illustrated here by uh, one of our distinguished uh, judges, Lord Sumption, um, newspaper commentators with, I have to say, varying degrees of consistency. But all of them would agree that there are some things that only the state can do when it comes to preventing disease. Now, this is not set for all time. The set point of public and parliamentary opinion about what is the appropriate things for the state to do to protect the health of citizens varies over time. I'm going to take a relatively extreme example just to illustrate this. It was actually quite controversial in Parliament when it was first proposed that the state should prevent children under the age of 10 being sent up chimneys to help clean them. It was widely recognised. It was a horrible life for the children. Many died. Uh, it was accepted that it caused lifelong health damage to the children uh, who usually had a very short life anyway. Many, most of them came from very poor families. But it was thought at that stage by some in Parliament an unnecessary imposition on trade. Campaigning to stop this began in the 1760s 
but it took over 100 years before an effective act was brought in because there was not absolute uh, unanimity and not even a majority, actually, uh, for some time for an effective intervention to prevent this. Now, we look back on this and we say this is quite extraordinary, but that is because... Uh, views about what is reasonable change over time. So I'm just using this to show that uh, this is not necessarily set at any point in time. And this can go in both directions. As I'll come on to uh, with some issues, the state now interferes significantly less than it did historically. So it can go in both directions. The central uh, point I want to make, though, for the rest of this talk uh, is that for most risks to health, there are three possibilities at a particular point in time. The first is that the public overwhelmingly expects the state to act and would be very critical if it did not. A government that went into a general election on a manifesto of saying we're not going to do this would be doing themselves significant harm with the citizens. who would say that's extraordinary. At the other side, there are very many things where the public overwhelmingly expects the state not to interfere, and we would be very critical if they did. And I've illustrated this. If, for example, a government proposed that we should ban rock climbing for children or ban licorice all sorts because they were bad uh, for children's uh, health, um, this would be considered undoubtedly a significant overreach in state powers at this point in time. Uh, and, so, and I think at any point in time, it is actually fairly uh, obvious to most citizens, most uh, people who think about this, most people in public health, and above all, most ministers and politicians, uh, where this lies, what the citizens want people, the state to do, and what they do not want the state to do. And then the public, there are some areas where the public is split about how far they want the state to in intervene. And this is where political tradition about the role of the state comes most into play. But uh, as I'll go on to, I think that a very large proportion uh, of the things where citizens want the state to act, uh, it is a, a very clear uh, decision, and it is for good logical reasons. And these, broadly, are the three areas where uh, the public expects the state to act, and usually has for generations, centuries, or in some cases, millennia. The first group of things is where the risk, the, health, the risk to health is shared across society. So if your risk increases, my risk increases, and vice versa. And examples of this are epidemics, where if I catch an infection, it makes it much more likely than the next person I meet will catch an infection, so protecting me protects them, and vice versa. Infectious diseases more widely, including vaccination, clean water, safe food, uh, and a variety of other things we'll go through. Pollution, both air and water, because it is very difficult to reduce pollution for me, but not for my neighbour, so this has to be done uh, at scale. Then there's a group of things where a major power imbalance may kill people or cause significant harm. And examples of this are industrial injury and occupational disease, where people solely because they go to work are harmed in terms of their health. Industries based on addiction, uh, like smoking in particular, some other drugs, um, and industries which are potentially dangerous, though important for society, such as motor vehicles. And finally, there is a long-standing tradition of protecting the most vulnerable, and in particular children uh, and uh, people who are pregnant uh, with uh, babies. Now, I'm now going to go through those in turn, but in each of these, the reason that citizens want the state to act, I think, is logical and stems from the fact it is very difficult to improve my health, my family's health, without the improving also the health of my neighbours. The first of these is states intervening to reduce the impact of epidemics. And there is clear evidence of this going back many, many centuries, and indeed, in some cases, millennia, following contemporary beliefs. Governments acted to try to reduce the risk of epidemics in every society for which we have records going back uh, very, very far in, back in history. 
And much of what we see in current views about how we manage epidemics actually have very old antecedents. For example, quarantine laws for people coming back from a country which might have been infected 14 days uh, was the original uh, for uh, much of the legislation, for example, in Venice, uh, brought in in the plague pandemic, so it could go up as long as 40 days, uh, has, goes back to the Middle Ages. The state often acted forcefully to detain sick people uh, in, uh, the, in an epidemic uh, and to isolate them to prevent uh, onward transmission. And there have been, for many centuries during epidemics, bans on what are seen as high-risk or close-contact occupations, for example, barbers, also medical practitioners and uh, a variety that we probably wouldn't want to talk about in a family uh, setting. John Snow's demonstration that contaminated water caused cholera uh, in 1854 was a turning point in turning this from it makes sense to the general population uh, into basing it on what we would now see as scientific evidence. This was really the beginning of uh, epidemics being seen uh, by epidemiology, uh, a a branch of science that looks at uh, uh, large-scale infections and other uh, non-communicable diseases. Now, the the history of this is uh, is probably just worth briefly repeating. Uh, Seven massive pandemics of cholera happened. Uh, The first starting in 1817, seventh is still ongoing. It's killed tens of millions of people. It's a huge issue. It was extraordinarily frightening uh, to be living living through. In the 1854 uh, London epidemic uh, in this city, mortality rates of up to 12% in a neighbourhood were seen. And uh, Snow famously mapped cases onto certain water companies. What he found is some water companies had much higher rates of cholera than others, and famously also onto the Broad Street pump in Soho, which he rather theatrically removed uh, the handle from. This really started off a tradition of scientific approaches to trying to reduce the impact of epidemics, and combating cholera typhoid and other epidemic diseases was considered the most important role of state medicine uh, for really quite a long period of time. This is where a lot of state medicine started off. And consistently, uh, populations around the world, going back right into history, but but up to the current time, uh, where we're going, for example, through the most major pandemic for many decades, the current COVID-19 pandemic, have consistently wanted, indeed demanded, that their state acts to help protect them from the pandemic. And if you think uh, about support for this in the UK now, uh, if you, the lockdown measures that happened in the UK earlier this year, uh, which were some of the most significant curbs uh, to freedoms the state has actually introduced for many decades... Uh, were supported overwhelmingly in all the polling that was conducted, over 90% support for these really quite strong measures by the state. And indeed, in late 2020, quite a lot, quite a lot later, the public still remain substantially, by a substantial majority, in favour of ongoing measures. All ages, all social groups, all political persuasions. This is across the board. So this is an area where public support in terms of the state intervening to help produce epidemics, uh, I think is uh, pretty clear why people do it. It's because my risk is your risk, but it is also clear this commands strong citizen support. And overwhelmingly, people intend to follow advice to protect themselves, their families, but also, importantly, other people. But they also want other people to do so as well, or their own Uh, sacrifices and decisions seem in vain. And since in all epidemics and many other infectious diseases, if I increase my risk, I increase it for everyone around me. And if most people want to reduce the risk to themselves, their family, and all vulnerable members of society, which overwhelmingly people do, many people take very altruistic views uh, on this, almost everyone does, in fact, They don't want others to increase the risk to the entire community by, as they would 
perceive it, uh, freeloading, although this perception is often actually quite unfair or exaggerated. The great majority of people in the current epidemic, for example, absolutely intend to follow all the rules. Uh, they are worried that other people will not, but in fact, the great majority of other people also want to and do follow the rules. But only the state can help ensure that we all reduce the risk of this and other epidemics. This is a general point, not about COVID. The state has the authority and the resources to act fast in an epidemic uh, and therefore to limit the damage. Whether imposing lockdowns, travel restrictions, switching research priorities, expanding healthcare, underwriting furlough schemes, these are just recent examples. It is not really obvious what the alternative to the state doing it uh, if an epidemic or pandemic hits. And interestingly, this has actually possibly, and maybe temporarily, changed the views of citizens about where they feel the balance of responsibility between the state, health practitioners, local government, which is another part of the state, and the individual sit. So here are uh, two uh, polls done by Ipsos Murray, uh, one in 2018, one in 2020, and both of them show that overwhelmingly the, the, the uh, individuals feel that the predominant responsibility uh, for maintaining health is the individual, uh, certainly the individual adult. Uh, national government and local government, however, um, have seen a significant increase in the expectation by citizens that they will also play a significant role in actually helping to improve health, or at least maintain health uh, in a good state. And I think that may well be because of what people saw uh, as part of the response to the COVID uh, epidemic. Sadly, still ongoing. Um, the COVID pandemic, COVID epidemic in the UK are it still is the largest, the most important, and the most destructive uh, in the UK for many decades. But uh, epidemics, very frightening epidemics, occur actually quite regularly around the world. And I've just illustrated this with a few uh, epidemics uh, within uh, easy, uh, my professional lifetime, Ebola, uh, where uh, it's still, there are epidemics, there's a small epidemic, uh, but it could easily grow at any point uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But uh, there was a major one in West Africa, as people will all recall, uh, AIDS probably the last massive pandemic with enormous uh, impact uh, on health around the world. Uh, Zika, uh, a more recent one. SARS, a precursor in many ways uh, to uh, COVID. Uh, the swine flu pandemic, a major pandemic, but with a disease that fortunately had a very low mortality. Uh, and then uh, smaller epidemics occur uh, every year in every country uh, or outbreaks uh, of things like norovirus and other vomiting, you know, other, other diseases. So these are actually quite common. And in all of these, local citizens would expect the state to act. The state has also long been seen as responsible for protecting from contagious endemic diseases. These are diseases which are there the whole time. There are some extreme examples from this. For example, leprosy was, one, was a disease which, if people had it and they were diagnosed, they would be uh, completely excluded in a very formal process from society. And then society would often uh, maintain them, the government uh, in many cases would maintain them uh, in uh, groups, leper colonies as they were called. Uh, and I've illustrated this uh, with the Hospital of St Giles, which was administered by the City of London, where I currently am speaking from, uh, until 1299. So here's an early example of local authorities intervening to uh, take an individual out of society uh, as it was then perceived to protect uh, the general population. In fact, a misunderstanding uh, to a large extent of how leprosy was transmitted. And tuberculosis wards, fever hospitals, these have been a responsibility of government of different forms in many societies uh, for many, many years. So the idea that the state should help to protect against infections uh, has been uh, long-standing. And in fact, the reduced threat from most contagious diseases has allowed a more muted response recently than used to be the case, because it is important for all forms of state uh, intervention to help protect health that, is, that it is proportionate. 
If this is illustrated here by Lowry's famous painting, very sad painting, The Fever Van. In the 1930s, when he was uh, painting this, um, the state in the form of local uh, authorities and medical practitioners, if a child had uh, major di uh, contagious diseases, for example, scarlet fever, the child would come and be removed from their home, all their possessions would be burned, they'd be taken off to a fever hospital where their parents could only see them through the windows, often they would then die. This was quite normal state uh, interventions. Because of improvements in sanitation, housing, diet, vaccination, uh, and above all, antibiotics, uh, we've been, we are now in a situation where this kind of intervention would, under, outside uh, major epidemics, be incredibly rare that the state would intervene in this kind of way, but it was commonplace. So, in fact, in many areas like this, the state now intervenes substantially less than it did historically. Then uh, another area where the state uh, is very heavily involved uh, is voluntary mass vaccination programs. I do want to stress the word voluntary. People sometimes forget what it was like in a pre-vaccine world. And I've illustrated this uh, with a ward full of people who had caught polio, a vaccine-preventable disease, uh, were paralysed and had to live their lives in these iron lungs, which were what kept them, uh, kept them alive. Uh, this is an, another example where reducing my neighbour's risk, reducing my, my neighbour's children's risk, helps reduce my risk, helps reduce my children's risk. So this is a situation where voluntary vaccination programmes, mass vaccination, helps protect everybody in society. And the, generally, for these kind of programmes, the higher the coverage, the greater the protection for everybody, including those who have not yet been vaccinated. Another area, again linked to infection, is providing clean water, sewerage, and regulating waste to reduce infection. And this has been seen as the responsibility of government, often local government, for centuries and, in some cases, millennia. Illustrating uh, this with the uh, Pont du Gard uh, um, uh, in Nîmes, uh, built uh, during the Roman era. Uh, but for London, probably the most important uh, development of this, and one of the great things of the 19th century, was the provision of clean water and, above all, sewerage uh, in London. This is what allowed the growth of London and stopped many of the huge epidemics and the major endemic diseases, such as typhoid, cholera, and diarrheal diseases. And I've illustrated this with uh, Joseph Bazalgette, who was responsible for much of this, uh, and one of the great sewers of London that he helped to uh, have constructed. So water and uh, sewage is a relatively uncontroversial area that is highly supported by people under almost all circumstances. The principle that the state should regulate food to keep it safe is long-standing. It's been expected of the state for a long time, but it can be controversial in practice. And here we move into the first uh, area of potential controversy. Now, this is, a, as I say, it's gone back a long time. Medieval cities had regulations about preventing spoiled food being, uh, being sold and cleanliness and a variety of other things to help try and reduce the risk of infection. Uh, uh, sometimes they actually allowed the, the food to be sold to strangers uh, but prevented it from being sold to citizens. And I'm going to just give three examples which uh, the state had to act for public health with food but which were controversial about whether the state should act and how it should do so. The first of those is the compulsory pasteurisation of milk. And this was primarily to protect children, especially from TB, tuberculosis, but also brucellosis, staphylococcus, and various other things. Unpasteurised milk is a perfect growth medium for large numbers of quite uh, dangerous pathogens. And uh, this was brought in uh, as a compulsory thing in, in stages between the 1920s and the 1950s. This was a very serious uh, issue. Uh, taking TB alone, at the point this started, about 1,600 children were estimated to die from TB caught from milk, uh, and many others would suffer significant uh, disease and disability from that or diseases like brucellosis. So this was not trivial. But there was a very strong lobby against it uh, when people tried to bring this in through Parliament, made up of parts of the dairy industry, actually particularly the higher-end uh, parts of the dairy industry, who felt that their superior products were going to now compete on, a, on a, uh, a level playing field with other ones. 
and people who were philosophically opposed to uh, interference for a variety of reasons, ranging from they wanted natural products to those who believed that actually the best way for children to get in, uh, in immunity uh, was to be naturally infected, of course, then nat- leading to uh, many uh, thousands of deaths over the decades, uh, which were in fact preventable by heating uh, milk for a uh, relatively uh, short period of time. But there was quite a strong lobby against. This is now uh, broadly very uncontroversial, but it was controversial at the time. Another example where there was a lot of controversy was in the 1980s, salmonella in eggs uh, here in the UK, now gone uh, very largely. Uh, This shows, again, how tricky it could be. Uh, It was a major public health issue. There was no doubt about the fact that there was a lot of salmonella, not in every egg, but in uh, much of the national uh, flock. Uh, And the true statement by a minister at the time that most of the egg production in in this country in 1988 sadly is now affected with salmonella led to a massive reduction in egg production, mass slaughter of chickens, and the minister having to uh, resign, uh, a minister called Edwina Curry. Um, Initially, this was managed by uh, compulsory um, slaughtering of chickens, but then uh, science came in and produced a vaccine And poultry vaccination has contributed to a a complete recovery of the UK poultry industry. And lion mark eggs are are one of the uh, ways in which we can see that has happened, completely superseding mass slaughter of inflected flocks. And over time, this has led to a real change in the number of people getting salmonella. So in the early 90s, over 18,000 cases. Uh, By uh, the 2010s, uh, less than 500. So a real uh, turnaround as a result of this intervention, but controversial at the time. Uh, And finally, um, uh, the BSE and new variant CJD are very tragic and debilitating, but fortunately rare, uh, neurological disease caught from infected uh, cows. Um, uh, Really most affected the UK, Uh, not exclusively, Uh, and what you had is a significant uh, peak in epidemic of BSE in cows, and then a smaller but still important uh, uh, ongoing uh, peak of infections uh, of humans who who had this terrible neurological disease. It had to led to a major uh, mass again slaughter of uh, cows, substantial change in the industry, uh, and had very big economic impacts. Again, highly controversial at the time it was there, but a strong expectation by citizens that the state would act to maintain the safety of food. So those are all areas around infection. The second area, and these are much broadly more discrete areas, is that there is broad support for the role of the state in reducing air pollution across the political spectrum, and I've just shown some front pages from newspapers which are not always politically in exactly the same place. And again, this makes complete logical sense because it is impossible, really, to reduce the risk of outside air pollution for me and my family without also reducing it for you and your family. This is an area where individual action will not work, so you have to actually operate at a societal level, and the state can allow that to happen. Again, this has been uh, considered a responsibility of government for a very long time in a variety of different ways. For example, in here in England, King Edward I banned the use of sea coal, a particularly uh, polluting form of coal, in London in 1272. And there have been multiple examples of that since then, some of them indeed associated with people uh, who worked in Gresham College. The biggest spur to UK action on air pollution uh, was the Great Smog of 1952. And this is when a combination of cold and atmospheric conditions in a, in a period when coal was used as the principal heating uh, and also power generating source uh, led to at least 4,000 people dying uh, over three days of severe smog. And it may have been as much as 12,000. So a really quite astonishing uh, impact. Uh, This led, uh, after quite a bit of parliamentary controversy, but it led to the Clean Air Act of 1956 and several things that have happened since then. Uh, And this will have led to substantial reductions in cardiovascular and lung disease because air pollution has significant effects on heart heart disease and stroke uh, as well as on the lung. 
Now, the big heavy industries that, you, that use coal as their principal aim uh, have been largely cleaned up or have moved over to cleaner sources of fuel. And this shows sulfur dioxide, one of the major pollutants, over time. Uh, and where the concentration of this uh, still is. And you can see a remarkable reduction from the 1970s on the left through to uh, around now, uh, where it has almost entirely disappeared as a major pollutant, uh, except on, around very specific sites. And the UK is actually doing fairly well in tackling emissions due to many of the main air pollutants. Uh, the exception, the one that is still very difficult, is motor vehicles of, of different sorts. And that's because you have to have the polluting uh, uh, thing, the vehicle, and people in the same place. You can't move it away from people because it's actually the way that people get around and need to get around using vehicles. And this, uh, this form of pollution um, is therefore going to be one of the hardest ones, and is, uh, but there are going to be significant improvements spurred on, as I'll show you, by state action. Now, the most extreme uh, example of how to deal with this was in the issue of lead in petrol, an, an instructive example, if a rather extreme one. Uh, lead has been known to be toxic for two millennia. Uh, and General Motors started to add uh, lead um, to uh, petrol um, from the 1920s. And they did this uh, to deal with a problem to do with compression, something called knocking. It's an engineering solution, but there were other engineering solutions available, but this one could be patented and those ones couldn't. So that was a lot of the thing which actually drove this. Very strong warnings, particularly from this remarkable uh, woman, Alice Hamilton, who was, who was one of the four, uh, forerunners uh, of uh, preventive medicine, uh, from the off. Uh, but three decades of research dominated by the industry at that stage uh, all claimed that uh, lead in the atmosphere probably didn't do anything, and if it did, it was there naturally. Uh, by the 1960s, the, the data, the science demonstrated that lead in petrol actually had really dangerous effects, in particularly on the brains of fetuses uh, and children. Significant reductions in, in, in IQ uh, may even be uh, some links to crime for reasons that were not fully understood. Uh, and restrictions began to be introduced by the state uh, to help the motor industry wean itself off lead in petrol that was causing real damage to children's development. And although it had been predicted by uh, people who were trying to support the use of lead that actually almost all the lead in the atmosphere had nothing to do with petrol, when it was removed, as you can see here in the UK, uh, the amount of lead in the atmosphere essentially completely disappeared. The final ban uh, on UK uh, petrol, which had lead in it, was 1998. But it was being phased down significantly before then. And this is an example of the state doing something slightly different, which is providing regulation to, to give a level playing field to industry in an area where everybody uh, is potentially affected and saying, let's spur uh, on innovation, engineering innovation, to engineer out the, uh, the, 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 in this case, pollution, but it could be other uh, risks. And if you look at this gradually tightening regulation that's happened here in Europe and elsewhere in the world as well, I'm just using the Europe one, what you can see is that both for petrol and for diesel, uh, over time, the amount of uh, particularly nitrogen noxes, nitrogen oxides, and particulate matter, which are two of the major pollutants that come out of vehicles, have gone down in stepwise way as the regulations have become tighter and engineering has responded, and then uh, the regulations tighten again, engineering responds, and these pollutants are gradually decreased. So this is an example of the state using regulation with industry to make sure, provided people know on cheats, and that there is obviously some, some rather uh, depressing examples of that, but provided people don't cheat, to move, keep the vehicles running, which people want, but reduce the risk to overall health. And finally, before I move off vehicles, I think it's just worth looking at road accidents, road traffic accidents, to consider how the state can intervene in multiple ways, most of which citizens are really uncontroversial to help protect the health and lives of citizens. And I've, I've grouped these into three, so four different groups. Um, the first of which is by regulation. Rather like with the uh, things that were being done to spur innovation to reduce 
the, the uh, pollutants in the atmosphere, car design regulations have steadily made cars safer and safer, inclu including things like crumple zones, airbags, uh, compulsory uh, build engineering in of uh, seat belts, and so on. The second uh, area where the state can act and has to act is, where it, is areas where it provides the infrastructure. So road design to make it safer, road lighting, uh, maintenance to ensure that there aren't uh, big potholes that lead to significant car accidents. Then there's a group of things which are about providing laws for all of us. They do protect me, the driver, my family, but they also protect me from other people. And that's the reason why the state has to act uh, in this way. Speed limits. Me driving along at a steady space doesn't help if the person coming the other way is driving far too fast uh, for safety in the road conditions. Driving tests to ensure that people have a minimum level of competence before they're let out on their own. Again, it's what happens if someone crashes into me you should uh, worry about. Drink driving laws and drug driving laws, uh, which ensure that someone driving towards you uh, is actually capable uh, of a straight line because they are unlikely, uh, if they are within the law, uh, to be drunk at the wheel, which is steadily tightened over time. Uh, and the MOT test to make sure that the car coming towards you, uh, overtaking rather fast, actually has good enough brakes to be able to stop. So these kind of things are areas which protect, although they're a nuisance for all of us individually, they help protect uh, us from uh, other people uh, and therefore provide a safer environment. The one that was the most controversial was the introduction of compulsory seatbelt wearing, first in the front of the car in 1983 uh, and subsequently in the back of the car. And here there was a battle between those who said this is going to reduce road deaths and those who said it's the unalienable right of a British uh, man or woman to drive without a seatbelt. A lot of rather hocus-pocus science was quoted in this, but that was the fundamental clash of ideas. But um, those who argued that this was a significant uh, contribution to improving road safety uh, won the day in Parliament. That was the view after some debate uh, of the population as expressed through Parliament. And I think nobody would now go back to a situation where people were just driving uh, without safety belts. I think the evidence of safety belts is not uncontested, but is pretty strong uh, in most people's views, that they significantly reduce the risk uh, to people in the front and also uh, people in the back. The combination of all of these has led to a very substantial reduction uh, in deaths from road traffic accidents uh, from cars. So uh, what we have, road accident deaths in the, in the late 70s, uh, over 6,000 a year. Uh, now, uh, in this period, uh, 2019, the last uh, for which we have full data, 1,748. Uh, that's a very substantial reduction. And this is through incremental uh, activities, much of which was spurred on by state regulation. Uh, or state, state decisions. The next group of things where the UK public, as expressed through Parliament, believes government should reduce the risk is by, for someone who goes to work preventably, preventably being killed solely because they've gone to work. Uh, if you look back, within living memory, thousands of people were killed at work. Uh, and even if you just go back to the 1970s, it was the high hundreds of people were killed in industrial accidents. Uh, we're now down to a situation where, uh, fortunately, only each one of these are tragedy, but only 92 people were killed due to, due to work-related activities uh, in that year, a remarkable reduction. And the UK is actually, from a work point of view, uh, one of the safest places in Europe and indeed uh, the world. Uh, now, people grumble often about health and safety regulations, but very many of these are to make sure that the fact that someone has to go to work for their employer is not the reason why they either don't go home that night uh, or they go home and subsequently have a disease or injury uh, which will have lifelong implications for themselves and their family. There is also generally support, as expressed, again, through democratic processes for action against occupational causes of disease, in particular cancer. Some cancers are largely 
caused by a particular occupation. And these have varied through history, depending on as industries have risen and fallen, uh, those have changed. So one of the earliest recognized examples, for example, uh, was a rather unpleasant cancer called Pott's scrotal cancer of chimney sweeps. Uh, and uh, this has gone away because there are no chimney sweeps uh, who are not in a, in a, in a regulated industry. It's, uh, it's now not, a, not, not seen, but was uh, relatively common in people who were doing it. Um, much lower rates now. Uh, around 4% of UK cancers are currently attributable to occupation and probably only about 1% avoidable in practice. And the most important of these was exposure to asbestos, which probably kills around 4,000 people a year. Almost all of uh, these people would otherwise uh, not have died of what they, they die of, which is a form of lung cancer, or the variety of forms of lung cancer can cause, but particularly something called mesothelioma. And again, this was something which was introduced by industry, a brilliant uh, product from a purely engineering point of view, asbestos, but it lead, led uh, to those who were heavily exposed, particularly uh, workers, uh, and their families, if they were, um, for example, uh, exposed to the dust, uh, having significant exposure, exposure, and mesothelioma is an extremely unpleasant uh, and uh, deadly cancer. Uh, and what you can see is it uh, uh, was, had a, has some bands of the most dangerous sort in the 1980s uh, and of the uh, still dangerous but slightly less dangerous sort in the 1990s. Um, we should have acted much faster. Uh, and uh, depressingly, uh, if we'd acted at the earliest point we knew uh, that mesothelioma was caused by asbestos, uh, it would have been much less widely used, uh, and many people um, who uh, died of this really unpleasant cancer would not have done so. Uh, the peak of mesothelioma deaths is around about now because there's a delay, uh, and it will continue to fall now for the rest uh, of uh, our, um, the lives of everybody who's watching this programme. Getting into slightly more uh, difficult territory um, is where a wealthy industry causes harm and depends for addiction on its operating model or where it harms other people who haven't brought the, bought the product. And the archetypal one of this that, tick, that ticks all of these boxes is the cigarette industry. I think everybody will know that lung cancer is the commonest cause of cancer deaths in the UK. Most people diagnosed today and this week will be dead within a year, and it's an extraordinarily unpleasant uh, cancer uh, for very many people. The great majority of those deaths are because an exceptionally wealthy industry has used incredibly effective marketing techniques to push highly addictive products they know will kill their customers, they know it will kill their customers, onto them at a very early age and historically in childhood. Smoking also causes heart disease, stroke, lung diseases, other cancers. And importantly, additionally, if someone else is smoking in the room, their smoke can damage my health, can kill me. So it, it has multiple reasons why society might be concerned about this. And just to back up this statement, the lung cancers are the most important in terms of mortality. Uh, more important, significantly more important uh, than prostate cancer, the commonest cause in uh, other cause in men, and breast cancer, uh, the commonest cause in women. Smoking is at the heart of the great majority of that. Again, just to back up my point, uh, targeting of children and teenagers, something which society rightly deplores in any uh, form, whether it's industry or anybody else. Uh, here are just a few uh, quotations from the days uh, before uh, this had really become, um, over, uh, become a big issue. Uh, school days are here, and that means big tobacco business. Let's get it. Uh, that's from the 20s. But still, by the 1970s, the base of our business is the high school student. Um, and there's a consistent pattern uh, through history of the cigarette industry claiming to deplore childhood and teenage smoking whilst undermining all efforts to try and control it. And interestingly, 74% of smokers, according to YouGov, think smoking should be banned in cars with children. So a very strong belief by the general public that we should protect children and we should also protect people from other people's second-hand smoke because they're not choosing. An individual can choose their own risk but they shouldn't be choosing it for their neighbour and they shouldn't be choosing it for children. 
Most data would suggest that the great majority of smokers want to quit and try, but they have been addicted to something with really strong marketing. So it is very important that we never blame individual smokers for lung cancer. They are up against one of the most powerful and wealthy industries in the world. So does the state have a role in this situation? Well, I think one thing, just to get a, get a feel for the level of disparity and remembering that smoking is particularly now targeted on people from lower uh, income levels uh, and often more deprived backgrounds, uh, is just to think a little bit about the extraordinary profits uh, that this industry brings in. I'm not going to read all of these out. They're all openly available de documents. This happens to be from British American Tobacco uh, Annual Report. Uh, uh, but I think I'll just highlight two things about this. The UK High Court accepts that the net economic effects uh, of tobacco use to society are around £13.7 billion a year, and the industry pays around £10 billion in taxes, plus causing uh, significant uh, long-term health problems for individuals and their families. Uh, the profit for uh, just this one uh, company is three times the total amount invested in health research by the Medical Research Council, National Institute for Health Research, and the Wellcome Trust, the big funders of health research in the UK for all diseases. So this just gives you some feeling for the size and strength of this industry. Uh, and this is the reason why an expectation is therefore met by many people that if they're targeting children, if the secondhand smoke, if people are exposed at work, the state should intervene. Then there are a variety of situations where the state provides services on a voluntary basis, but on a mass scale. And I'll just highlight two of those. The first of those is screening, which I'll do a full lecture on. Uh, cervical screening in women has led to a substantial reduction in cancer. Uh, around a 40% reduction, I think, would be a, a, a fairly uh, standard estimate of this. And bowel cancer screening, uh, breast cancer screening, and other successful programs have also led to substantial reductions in mortality from these important cancers. And it does this primarily by the state providing a service which detects uh, the infection uh, in the case of cervical cancer, uh, the, other, the cancer in the case of the other cancers early, so they can be treated quickly uh, and uh, minimally, uh, uh, dealing with the problem at the earliest possible stage. So, um, and then the other uh, one, as I talked about earlier, was mass vaccination. So these are the areas where this, the public expects the state to act, uh, as revealed by what has been done over usually centuries uh, or certainly uh, decades uh, and has gone through uh, parliament and other democratic processes. Where risk is shared across society, your risk is my risk, epidemics, infectious diseases, pollution, where there's a major power imbalance which may kill people and where it's about protecting the most vulnerable. And this has led, in part, many other things have contributed, uh, as I say, including improved quality of living, diet, massive improvements in medical science for treatment, uh, to an extraordinary impact in disease over time. But then there are some areas which are much more contested, and I'm just going to raise them and this is, these are the areas where different uh, times in history and different states and different political persuasions will come to significantly different answers as to what is the role of the state in preventing disease. And the first of these is the role of the state in paying for and providing individual medical treatment, including secondary prevention. And this varies very widely by tradition and politics. In the UK, at this time in history, there is a very strong and almost uh, universally, not completely universally, uh, supported position that we have uh, provision by the state free at the point of delivery. And within that system, GPs, general practitioners, do the great majority of secondary prevention. Uh, some hospital doctors, NHS doctors do as well. But other nations, uh, equally advanced, equally scientifically literate, equally uh, civilised and humane, have widely different, differing approaches to state responsibility for treatment. And if I can just uh, show uh, this scattergraph, uh, this comes uh, from the Global Burden Disease Study, what it shows is uh, the proportion on the left of health spending from the government, and on the right, the gross domestic product of the uh, nation involved. And within that, there is a broad trend that wealthier societies pay for a higher proportion of treatment. 
but is by no means universal. And many rich countries uh, will, for example, uh, pay much smaller proportions of the cost of treatment. This is very much, therefore, a contested area of whether the state should act or not, depending on uh, political tradition. But in the UK, a very settled view about whether this form of prevention done through the curative services, GPs in particular, uh, should be provided by the state. And then finally, what should the state do about harmful health trends which depend on an adult making individual decisions? Uh, and this becomes a bit clearer, I think, when it's, we're talking about children. But particularly when we're talking about adults, this is a contested area. An example here is rising obesity, which is a major threat uh, to health. It's often driven by heavy and persistent marketing by perfectly respectable firms uh, or, uh, and or by limited choices. And the, the limited choices, I think, is highlighted by the fact these are year six children in terms of their level of obesity, and this is by deprivation level. And the most deprived on the far left have significantly higher rates of obesity in childhood in year six uh, than the, uh, the least deprived. So a strong link there. And the state pays for the consequences. Obesity will lead to many diseases which will lead in long term to other, other areas. What is the role of the state uh, in combating uh, this? That is something which different people from different persuasions will come to different decisions about the relative importance of the state role. But broadly, uh, the, the, the bottom end of this is relatively uncontroversial. Supporting science to test possibilities to improve the situation, informing the public, providing information so they can make better choices. Many foods, for example, people don't realise what's in them. Engagement with industry on a voluntary basis, because most industries want to do the right thing, uh, and if you provide a level playing field, uh, they will do so. But there becomes more controversy about whether we should go further into nudge taxes, regulations, and in particular, heavy taxation, banning, or making individuals uh, subject to criminal, criminal or, or civil law. And I think most people, most political traditions would, in the UK at this point in history, would move very, very cautiously about going further than halfway up this ladder of interventions unless the evidence is really clear that's the right thing to do. So here's an example where uh, the, the state, in the form of the, the government, uh, due to government, went uh, halfway up that ladder. And this was the soft drinks sugar levy, um, and this uh, took uh, soft drinks, uh, sodas in other traditions, um, and it said no tax below uh, five grams of sugar, and then there was a, 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 a kind of uh, a, a ramping up of tax depending on how much sugar there was. The result of that was industry reformulated down to the levels. So they didn't stop the products, they simply reformulated to reduce the amount of sugar. And the response to this, the result of this was total sales went up 14.9%. And they went up, these are the blue bars, in every social group. So individuals continued to buy their favorite drinks. The supermarket, the drinks manufacturer continued to get their profit. But the total amount of sugar went down by a very substantial 35% overall, and this was true in every social group again. So here's an example where a nudge tax in relative terms led to a reformulation by industry, and that led to uh, no long-term impact on uh, people's choices or industry's uh, profits, but a significant reduction in a particular health risk. So this is going a little bit over the way up the ladder of intervention. But how far people will go does depend on evidence. And the more contested something is, the more absolutely critical the evidence is robust. And three things have to be kept broadly in balance. The difficulty of the intervention, which includes how unpopular it is, so banning sweets would be extremely unpopular. You'd have to have an extraordinarily good reason to do that. Uh, but you might want to uh, do some other uh, milder interventions. Uh, cost how long it's going to take, a whole variety of other things. The second thing that has to be kept in balance is the size of the health effect. If the size of the health effect is going to be really substantial, people will be tempted to go further up the ladder than if the size of the effect is going to be, at the end of the day, pretty trivial. Uh, and then the final question, 
uh, is the strength of the evidence. If you've got very weak evidence, even if you're claiming it's going to have a big effect, then do not expect people who are elected politicians to go much of the way up the ladder uh, because uh, they will feel that's an inappropriate thing to do in this more contested area. So this triangle of difficulty of intervention, size of the health effect, and strength of the evidence, I think it's something that people who provide health advice and provide uh, look at science for public health need uh, properly to keep in balance. And I've illustrated this uh, just because of its... Uh, uh, because it's um, happened recently uh, by the Penrose Triangle after Sir Roger Penrose, who was in fact professor of, uh, Gresham Professor of Geometry here uh, and has uh, just this year won the Nobel Prize. Finally, before I uh, summarise, for those who are sceptical of the state's right to intervene for wider public health in these more contested areas, so I don't think this is true for the areas like, inf like uh, epidemics, infections, uh, air pollution, but in these more contested areas, certain things will make it more likely that citizens and therefore uh, politicians uh, elected uh, will be comfortable. If it's protecting the vulnerable, children, the elderly, uh, others, if there's strong evidence, if there's a big effect, if it's obviously cost-effective, and if it has a particular impact on the healthy uh, working-age population because that feeds through to wider uh, societal benefits. They will be more sceptical if it removes existing rights, removes pleasures, exposes citizens to laws that weren't there before, provides a barrier to trade, expands government, or a constant fear has unintended consequences. And I think people who think about these interventions in the more contested areas, I think, have to think uh, about all of these potential issues. So my final point. There has been a remarkable improvement in health over uh, the last 150 years uh, after a long period of relative stasis when this from since when this college was founded, so from about the 1850s. Much of that has come through uh, better housing, better diet, and uh, things which go with growing economies. Much of it has come from individual decisions, and much of it has come from medical science leading to massively better diagnosis uh, and treatment. But a lot of it also has come from the state acting to prevent disease, particularly in people who currently are well, but if the state did not intervene, might well be injured or have diseases of a variety of sorts. And the, uh, the period of history of formal state medicine uh, in the UK, certainly for central government, can I think reasonably be uh, started with the first chief medical officer, Sir John Simon, uh, who, was in, who was actually uh, first uh, appointed uh, in 1855, just at the point that this graph went up. This isn't cause and effect, but throughout this period of extraordinary improvement in first child and then adult health, uh, state medicine has played a very major role, uh, and one where most citizens, through their elected representatives, uh, have been highly supportive. Thank you very much.